You don't need me to tell you that because you know it. Things are not right in the world. Um, Things are not right with the environment. Um, The cyclone in Mozambique and one that's hitting um, New Zealand and Australia right about now. Um, This just from the news this week, the glaciers on Mount Everest are are, um, melting back so far that this is really kind of gross, but bodies of mountain climbers over the years that have died are being rediscovered because the glaciers are are uh, melting so far. Evidently, access to clean water is going to be an issue for many people in the world a lot sooner than we thought. Things aren't right with the environment. Things are not right politically. We know, and it's not just in the U.S., but around the world. Our political leaders can't seem to figure out how to lead together for the common good. And you know all of those news reports, so I don't have to re-say them to you. Things are not right when women are in danger in so many places around the world. When women in India have to be fearful of being raped. When, when K-pop and, and um, hip-hop artists are being accused of abusing women. When, when a whole bunch of women have to go onto the streets with placards that say, my life is not your porn. And it's not just someplace else in the world, but things are not right when women who are vulnerable in Boston are in strip clubs around our city. Things are not right when pornography is the largest business on the internet. Things are not right with mass incarceration. Things are not right with the clergy sex abuse scandal. Things are not right when Muslims at prayer are shot and murdered in mass. Things aren't right when more than a million Muslims are in re-education camps in China. Things are not right when people are mistreated for the color of their skin, for, for their ethnicity, for their sexual orientation, or for any other reason. Things are not right in the world. And if we're very, very honest, we know that it's not just that things are not right out there, but things are not right in our hearts. Whenever we choose sin and selfishness over sacrifice and selfless love, things are not right in our hearts. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't think that this is just a, um, an unfortunate um, collection of events or circumstances. Because of what Jesus has taught us, we who are his followers know that one of the reasons that things are not right is that we are in the midst of a cosmic spiritual battle. We know that there is an enemy of our souls. There is an enemy that desires to kill, maim, and destroy. And that's one of the reasons why things are not right. So Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. As followers of Jesus, we know that there is this thing that is very, very real called spiritual warfare. Probably at no time in the history of the human race was the spiritual warfare warfare more intense than it was in that first Holy Week when the powers of Satan were swarming and conspiring to once again, because they tried it before, to once again put to death the Son of God.
So I want to talk with you this morning about spiritual warfare and the ministry of Jesus. I want to talk to you about spiritual warfare and Wednesday of Holy Week. And then I want to talk about spiritual warfare and what it means in our lives. First, what did spiritual warfare have to do with the ministry of Jesus? Um, But before I do that, we have to also acknowledge as Christians that we are different than many other world religions. We do not believe that Satan and Jesus are equals. Jesus, as a member of the Trinity, eternally existing with the Father and with the Spirit, the creator of the universe, Jesus is supreme and rules over all as God who is sovereign. Angels are created beings. So God is sovereign and rules over all as creator. And then God creates heavenly beings. And then God creates human beings. So when we think of the warfare between good and evil, it is not that Jesus and Satan are equally yin and yang, fighting yin and yang, fighting against each other. Jesus is God. And compared to Jesus, Satan is a mere created angelic being. There are two kinds of angels. There are angels who were faithful, who who decided that they would honor and obey and love God. And then there are angels who are fallen, who with Satan decided out of Satan's pride that he wanted to have the attention that was to be given to God, who rebelled against God and fell from God's grace. So we know of angels as, as fallen angels and as faithful angels. So the equivalent of Satan would be angelic messengers of God like Gabriel and Michael, not Jesus. And that is very important because as Christians, we never ever wonder whether good and evil are equal. We know that God is God. Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is overall and supreme. With that understanding, let's think about the ministry of Jesus and spiritual warfare. When Jesus was born... We know from from knowing the Christmas story that the hosts of heaven, the angels of heaven, rejoiced over the fact that Jesus was born. We also know that Satan was paying attention because Satan tried to put Jesus to death by killing all of the boys under two years old in the entire vicinity of Bethlehem. And it is a mark there, infanticide and genocide are always a mark or a fingerprint of our enemy, the devil, who seeks to kill, maim, and destroy. And it started at the very beginning of Jesus' life. Then after Jesus um, began his public ministry, he was baptized by John the Baptist, and we're told that the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness, where he fasted for 40 days. And Satan went after him again. Satan tried to convince Jesus to join him in rebellion against God. Satan tried to get Jesus to worship him. Satan tried to get Jesus to test God, to see whether God would really care for him. And it's interesting in, um, in the Gospels, in Matthew and in Luke, we read specifically, let me find it for you. Is it up there? Nope, keep going. All right. I will find it later when I come in into my notes. Um, But at his 
at, and in the wilderness, we're told that Satan left Jesus. Jesus defeated Satan with the power of the word of God. And Satan, we are told in Luke 4, he left Jesus until an opportune time. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see Satan trying to disrupt and trying to resist the work of Jesus. In his public ministry, Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of God had come. Part of what that meant was that people were healed from their diseases, and part of what it meant is that people were freed from demonic influence. The people watched that as Jesus would would free people, as he would cast out demons, and they were utterly amazed because never before in the history of the universe had there been someone with such power over demonic forces. And so people watched that with authority, he commanded even the unclean spirits, and they obeyed him. Then in Matthew 12, 28 and 29, um, his antagonist started to say, well, the reason that you're casting out demons is because you are a demon. And somehow that's giving you the power to do it. And Jesus says, said, if it, is by the, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? The strong man that Jesus bound was Satan, so that Jesus had power over all demonic influence. And then Jesus gives his followers that power over demonic forces. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus had sent out the 72 on short missions trips, and this is what we read, the 72 um, returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Throughout Jesus' ministry, we see this this combating the, the will of Satan with the will of God. And we see Jesus constantly exercising power over demonic forces. But what does spiritual warfare have to do with Jesus in Holy Week? I don't know about you, but, but I have the picture in my head of the Death Eaters in Harry Potter swarming and gathering forces and in their darkness descending to try to destroy Jesus in Holy Week. If you've been here with us for the last few weeks, you know that we are looking at Jesus in Holy Week day by day. So three weeks ago, we looked at Palm Sunday. And we ask the question, how is Jesus becoming more the center of our lives? And then two weeks ago, Janet looked with us at Monday of Holy Week when Jesus cleansed the temple. And we asked ourselves the question, how is Jesus becoming more of an authority or the authority in our lives? Then last week, Pastor Danny looked at Tuesday of Holy Week. Tuesday of Holy Week was a very long day for Jesus. Um, He was, was constantly being barraged with criticisms and questions from the religious leaders so they could trip him up. And by the way, a third of the Gospels is just the last week of Jesus. We actually know more about what Jesus did in one week of his life than we know of any other ancient figure what they did in one week of, week of their life. So on Tuesday, there was this day of argumentation, but this was also the day where Jesus gave the greatest commandment to love God with all our being and to love one another at ourselves and so as ourselves. So we asked ourselves the question, how much is loving God and loving others at the center of our lives? And so today, we come to Wednesday 
of Holy Week. But there's a problem with Wednesday of Holy Week. And the problem is this. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we go from Tuesday night of Holy Week and Tuesday after the whole day of argument, Jesus went back out to Bethany because he was staying. Each night he went back to Bethany. He was staying in the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So he would go back to Bethany. And on Tuesday night, we know that a woman broke a jar of perfume over Jesus. And some of the disciples complained about it, should have been saved money given to the poor. And Jesus said, no, she did this for my burial. Jesus knew Tuesday night. He had been telling the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to die. He knew Tuesday night that it was imminent. And so in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we go from Tuesday night and his anointing for his burial. And then the next thing we start, we read about is the preparations for the Passover on Thursday morning. There's zero about what happened on Wednesday. And then we get to the Gospel of John, and John has the, the fewest number of kind of daytime um, time markers in his Gospel, but we read of, of things leading up to, um, to uh, well, we read of Palm Sunday and then, then Monday and Tuesday, and then we read about Thursday, and he has, John has the most about what happened from Thursday and Friday because he talks about washing the disciples' feet. He talks about identifying Judas Iscariot at the Last Supper. Talks about going out to the Garden of Gethsemane and praying. And so John has the largest number of verses dealing with Thursday to, um, to the crucifixion on Friday. But there's this one enigmatic verse in the Gospel of John. It's John 12, verse 36. And it seems like this applies to Wednesday. It's the only verse that we can find that says anything about what Jesus did on Wednesday of Holy Week. John 12, 36 says, when Jesus had finished speaking, he hid himself from them. So the only thing we know that Jesus did on Wednesday of Holy Week is he disappeared. He just went AWOL. And no one has anything to say about it. So I went back through the Gospels this week. And I paid attention to when Jesus disappeared and found that there is a very clear pattern in the Gospels when Jesus disappears. After intense days of ministry where he was healing, where he was teaching, where he was casting out demons, and after times of intensified spiritual warfare, it was normal for Jesus to disappear. So let me share with you just some of the examples in the wilderness. He's baptized by John. It's time to start his ministry. Jesus disappears for 40 days to fast in the wilderness. This is where I had the scripture. So Luke chapter 4, um, Jesus answered Satan at the end after Jesus had defeated him. Jesus answered Satan and said, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had en ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Jesus just disappears. We come across the same thing when he hears that John the Baptist has been beheaded. We're told in Matthew 14 that Jesus withdrew to be alone. After feeding the 5,000, in Matthew 14, verse 23, Jesus dismisses the crowds, and we're told that he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Again, in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, following a late, very late night of ministry because he ministered well into the evening, we read in Mark 1, 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, 
left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And then one more in Luke chapter 5, verse 16. Um, and this is, um, says about Jesus' ministry um, because his ministry was growing. Even more the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. And verse 16, but Jesus would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. Do you see the pattern? In times of, of heavy ministry burdens, in times of increased spiritual warfare, Jesus disappeared to be with God. And that was the normal pattern of his life. Just think of what is going on in Holy Week. Tuesday was a long and difficult, challenging day. And then at the end, he is anointed for his burial. When Jesus wakes up on Thursday morning, he's going to start giving instructions for the preparation of the Passover meal. He's going to go to have the Passover meal with his disciples. He will wash their feet. He will identify Judas, who will leave to betray him. He will then go out to the Garden of Gethsemane and pray. And then he will be arrested and he loses all control of his time from that moment to when he is crucified. Wednesday is, is Jesus' last respite before the gathering forces of hell are unleashed and all hell breaks out against him where he would be tortured, spit upon, and nailed to a cross. Wednesday was his last day to be alone with God before he died. And you know, back up what's utterly amazing about this is we know that Jesus is God. He didn't have to do it. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels and put an end to the whole thing and said, I am not going through with this. But instead in the Garden of Gethsemane in great anguish, he says, not my will, but yours be done because he loved you and I enough to suffer so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could become friends with God. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. But do you see the powers of darkness that were assembling against him? Because Satan thought that he would win the victory if only he could put Jesus to death. Because Satan doesn't have the knowledge of God. He was just a mere angel. And so he marshaled everything to destroy and defeat Jesus. Which brings me to the final point that I want to kind of expand on um, this morning. What does spiritual warfare have to do with our lives? And just out of curiosity, have you ever had a time in your life where you felt some kind of intensified spiritual warfare? Marla and I lived in, in Honduras and Panama for 15 years, and we actually started to see a pattern. Every Halloween, we would notice intensified sense of spiritual battle and, and, and trouble within the world. And we came to see the same pattern every Lent. And, I mean, it would be a mistake to think that every one of our struggles, every one of our trials is directly from the hand of Satan. But it would also be a mistake to think that none of the struggles and trials in our lives are from the hand of Satan. And so we would watch in Honduras and Panama, among our friends and, and between each other, we would have arguments that made no sense to have. That we, didn't, we weren't trying to hurt each other. We weren't trying to get our way. We didn't, didn't kind of miscommunicate. 
But we would have this argument. We would notice in our congregation more physical sickness and even some, some threatening episodes of, of physical health and well-being. We would notice kind of this, this discontent, a higher measure of hopelessness or sadness or a disequilibrium. We would just start to notice. And, and any one of those things could have just been normal life of all of us going through with things. But we started to notice that they accumulated. They became more of us being inflicted with these kinds of things that when we step back, we would say, wait a second. Satan is intensifying his battle against us and against the followers of Jesus because Satan is intent to, to lie to us, to deceive us, to in any way destroy us, to neutralize us, from making an impact to advance the kingdom of God. And there's no reason to suggest that spiritual warfare is any less intense now than it was in the time of Jesus. So have you ever noticed increased spiritual warfare? One of the reasons I bring this up is because the spiritual overseers and leadership team here at Cornerstone have been talking about this. We've sensed that there may well be kind of other things that Satan is trying to sow among us, either with suffering or with trials or with temptations or with doubts or insecurities or shame. And this isn't scientific, but the spiritual overseers have met a couple weeks in a row and will meet again this week to pray for spiritual protection for our congregation because we sense that something may be going on that isn't just normal, that is actually um, Satan with his spiritual attack. All right, the good news is this. The bad news is Satan is alive and well on the earth. There are reasons why things are not well in the world. The good news is that we have been given tools for spiritual warfare in our lives and with our spiritual friends. And I want to give you four scriptures. I'm not going to comment in depth. Every one of them could be like multiple sermons. I want to give you four scriptures as an arsenal for you when you notice spiritual warfare in your life. Scriptures that you should go back to for the rest of your life when you feel like something is not right, that somehow you are targeted or that your friends or loved ones are being targeted, that you go back to these four scriptures as tools of, of warfare when you face spiritual battle. The first one is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, which remind us to be alert for spiritual warfare. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 10, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. Like Jesus, let's be alert for the poise and deceptions of our enemy, the devil, because he is a roaring lion seeking to 
devour and destroy every follower of Jesus Christ. And when our friends are feeling intensified attack, let's pray for them and let's be alert on their behalf so that we can stand with them so that they can be restored. Second scripture that I would give you, I hope that you're familiar with it. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. And it is about putting on the full armor of God. And, um, and so we're going to put it up here. I'm going to read the, um, the first verse there. It's a little bit hard to see, but I'd like you to read verse 12 um, in unison. Um, and then I'll pick up after that. So Ephesians chapter 6, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And would you read verse 12 together? Everyone together? You know what? Read that again. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, Take up the shield of faith with which you can There we go. <laughs> with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind. Again, be alert. And always keep on praying for all of God's people. God has given us the armor that will protect us, that will enable us to stand, and not just to stand, but he has given us spiritual armor that we can take territory from the kingdom of Satan for the kingdom of God. And there's like 10 sermons in that. Um, but this is a scripture that you should come back to. I'm pretty sure that most Christians should probably spend six months to a year, sometime in their life, just on this scripture alone, so that you know what is the armor of God that he has given you. The word of God is so, so critical. But you know, no soldier figures out how to use the weapons of their warfare in the middle of the battle. Soldiers train before the battles come. Which means that learning about the full armor of God has to be woven into your life before all of the attacks are coming against you. And if it's not there when the attacks come, you won't want, know what to do with the armor of God. But let's start now to have a habit of immersing in Scripture so that we have the power of Scripture on our behalf, the power of truth on our behalf, just like Jesus did when he confronted Satan. And it was interesting when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, not only did he use Scripture to refute Satan, but Satan twisted Scripture to try to convince Jesus. And Jesus identified that 
as well because he was immersed in the word of God. And I think that this is going to mean that before the battles come, we have to find our times to disappear to be with God so that we learn how to use the weapons of our warfare. Which brings us to our next scripture, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. And this one's in italics. I'm going to let you read the entire thing. This is take captive every thought. So why don't you read together starting with verse 3. Much of spiritual warfare takes part in our minds. Satan is a liar. He has been a liar from the beginning. He is the father of lies. When he tempted Adam and Eve to fall, it was with a lie. When he tempted Jesus, it was with a twisted scripture that was a lie. One of the important weapons of our warfare is to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Because if we don't capture those thoughts, if we don't identify the lies that we are believing, the lies that we are living out, then Satan can continually trip us up. So part of spiritual warfare is to learn how to take every captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And then the last scripture is just one, uh, two sentences, very brief, James 4.7. James 4.7 says this, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's interesting, for all of his fearsomeness, Satan's a coward. Satan cannot abide when we submit to God and then say, get behind me, Satan. When we resist Satan, he flees. Which is why the scriptures remind us that as the followers of Jesus Christ, we will one day judge angels. We can submit to God and we can resist the devil and he will flee. There may be times when, when that, takes, that has to be a consistent habit for a season. But when we resist the devil, he will flee just as we saw Jesus resist him and he fled time and time again. The best way to resist the devil is to submit ourselves to God. To pray what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. So full disclosure, um, this was not an academic sermon for me this week. Two weeks ago, I went through one of the darkest weeks I've had in over a decade in my life. And I didn't know my voice would waver. When I talked to my kids and my friends about it, my voice got like this. And I could hardly hold back the tears. There were fears that were triggered. It started with an external thing. And then it went very dark and very, very deep, faster than I can remember it, maybe ever having done in my life. I, I, was, I was afraid of abandonment. I was afraid of failure. There, were, there were, were feelings of shame that were welling up within me. And it was destroying me. Marla, Marla was watching me, kept looking at me, saying, what's going on with you? It doesn't make sense. And so, by the grace of God, I had set aside a day and a half just to be alone with God. I took a 10-mile walk one day and cried most of that time. Also, by the grace of God, I, I had a couple friends in my life 
who I just said, I feel like I'm dying inside. And so on that 10-mile walk, I got like eight texts and emails with scriptures, with encouragements, because you know something worse than going through spiritual warfare is going through spiritual warfare all by yourself. We have such a power in community when one of us is being attacked that the rest of us can go to these scriptures, can go to other scriptures and remind us of truths that we know. Because when we get in the middle of it, we lose track of truths. It's just, just grief can wash over us and we don't know what to do about it. Not all spiritual warfare is that intense, but I went through a week that felt like hell and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And so just this last week, I had to experience spiritual warfare and what I was going to do about it. I was saved by the power of the word of God. I was saved by spiritual friends who kept reminding me of what was true so that I didn't believe the lies, so that I wouldn't despair. 1 Peter 5, verse 10 says, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. For some of you, these four scriptures apply right now to stuff that's going on in your life. Some of you are in the middle of, of knowing that there is spiritual warfare, that Satan is targeting you. And I want to encourage you that if you resist the devil, he will flee. But we know that the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast because God is so good. Will you pray with me? Father, some of us here are doing just, just doing really well in life and in our spiritual journey. And I pray that, that when we are doing well, that we would be alert for the spiritual warfare going, in the, going on in the lives of those we know and love. And there are some here who have felt crushing defeat or failure or uselessness or abandonment. There are some here who haven't been able to shake a discontent or a hopelessness or anxious thoughts that aren't kind of our normal anxious thoughts. For those, Father, who Satan is targeting right here this morning, would you help the rest of us as brothers and sisters in Christ to be alert to remind one another of the great truths of the word of God. Would you, and, and as we do that for one another, would you strengthen us so that when it is our time, that we will have ready and able, and knowing how to use the weapons of our warfare. Lord Jesus, in your name, we stand against the ploys of the enemy. In your name, we stand before Satan, who is a roaring lion seeking to devour not just us, but to kill, maim, destroy, and lie throughout the world. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. 
We claim your authority, Jesus, and your power to not just stand against the, the fiery darts of the enemy, but to storm the gates of hell so that the kingdom of God is opened up for many more so that we do our part to make this world a better place. In Jesus' name, amen.